Hi, and welcome to Facts and Blog and Podcast. Hi, and welcome to a special recast episode of the Facts and Blog and Podcast. Today, we're going to take a look back at episode 28 entitled Firearms, Defense, and the Law. Before we get started, if you're listening to this before October 1st, 2020, you still have a chance to enter our Hog Harvester giveaway. Visit factsandfirearms.com for your chance to win a prize pack valued at over $4,000 featuring a custom 300 blackout fax and rifle and prizes from Bog, Rocky Boots, Crimson Trace, Hornady Ammo, Caldwell Shooting, Tipton Gun Cleaning, one-off coding LLC, lockdown, and old timer. On episode 28, Sean Maloney was our guest. He is a defense attorney and founder of Second Call Defense, which specializes in providing all the legal support and coverage you need as a firearm owner should you ever become involved in a defensive shooting. We may think that things like Castle Doctrine, Stand Your Ground, or even homeowner's insurance would cover us in such an event, but as Sean points out, it really doesn't. All right, as promised, uh, this week we have a very special guest where we're kind of, uh, you know, we've been in and out of things like tutorials and how-tos and some product items, um, but we, we do like to talk about just, you know, the the firearms community and some of the things that surround it, whether it be culture or what have you, and so it's great to have a legal mind on. Uh, Sean Maloney from Second Call Defense is here, and uh, he's going to walk us through some of what Second Call is all about, but also some of the laws and perceptions that go along with gun ownership, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, legal standards and so on. So, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate uh, uh, being here today. And, of course, I've had a longstanding relationship with Facts and Facts and Firearms make a great product. And uh, and I always like to pat you guys on the back for what you do because manufacturing firearms isn't the easiest thing to do in the world with all the regulations and and everybody yeah. knocking on your door. So yeah, for I, sure. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, totally. Our pleasure. So Sean, I mean, when we look at secondcalldefense.org um, and we click on the team, it says you're a defense attorney. That's correct. So how long have you been practicing and, and kind of, you know, uh, what other things do you do outside of even okay. second call? Uh, I started practicing uh, criminal law in 1993. Uh, it was, I, I sort of fell into it. Mm-hmm. I was in the house counsel for J2 Homes and then Dixon Builders. And every Monday morning, I ended up going to court somewhere to get my contractors out of jail from a weekend of drinking and fighting <laughs> or whatever they were doing. And yeah. so that's kind of how my criminal practice started. And then probably the last 15 years, uh, it's been almost exclusively confined to the area of, of a good guy or a good girl using a gun in self-defense or firearms law. Whether it's Nick's appeals, someone getting turned down from, buy, from buying a firearm, uh, w- representing people against the ATF or the FBI for oftentimes crimes that they didn't know they were committing. And so yeah. my, uh, my criminal practice grew uh, basically just to deal with anything but firearms. And then I had a client one day, I'm also an NRA instructor, taught him basic pistol. He got his concealed carry permit. He brandished his firearm, which probably saved his life. But he did it the wrong place, the wrong time in Fairfield, Ohio. And he got arrested and uh, and was treated like, like the criminal that he wasn't. So we had to go through, uh, when he called me on the phone on a Friday night, uh, he was sobbing. Mm-hmm. Couldn't understand him. But being a criminal defense attorney, I figured something was going on. I said, if you've been arrested, hand the phone to somebody. And then the sergeant got on the phone and uh, and 
told me he was accused of brandishing, but then a felonious assault because of that, which was an overcharge. And so at probably 22 years old with two small kids at home and a wife, I knocked on her door and we went around for about four hours, all the friends, relatives, and neighbors she had to get, to get $10,000 cash to bond him out. Because I knew he wouldn't be the same person come Monday morning. Right. Yeah. And that's how uh, really second call defense started. I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. There has to be protection out there for the good person with a firearm. And at that point in time, there really wasn't anything when we started developing it. And then we launched uh, with the United States Concealed Carry Association at about the same time. Yeah. And uh, it's been full speed ahead ever since then. So, I mean, we'll, we'll start at the top level just to, uh, and then we can maybe get into some situational things and maybe some of the misconceptions that come along with the, the legality of mm -hmm. being a, a gun owner and having to use it in self-defense. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, second call defense has these packages that people can, uh, you know, purchase like a coverage. But it's also there's support involved. There's there's legal coverage involved. Um, and it, it really fills the gaps, a lot of gaps that you didn't know were there, right. you know, for things like, you know, castle doctrine and overall self-defense, uh, as well as, you know, some people assuming like umbrella policies and homeowners insurance will, will help cover those things. And many of them don't. Um, so, so kind of what are some of the things people can see, as far as coverage from second call defense? Well, the, the first thing I always like to point out is the fact that people's homeowners liability policies just don't cover you. Mm. Uh, essentially, almost all of them have an exception for intentional acts. Mm. So if you intentionally do something, your, your, your insurance company, your liability policy isn't going to cover you. Well, make no mistake about it. When you shoot somebody in self-defense, it's an intentional act. If it's not, then you have some other problems we have to deal with. And so when I first discovered that, uh, we started to form the, the insurance type portion of it, but also under the laws of the United States, an insurance company cannot provide upfront coverage for somebody that's been charged with a criminal act. They don't want you to uh, to shoot your neighbor or to shoot your wife and get to and collect the insurance policy. So that, right. that's probably where that came from. So the first thing was that we had to come up with a program that was not considered insurance. So we started an educational program with it in our own private foundation that we fund. Yeah. Now, the foundation had to be backed by insurance in order for the foundation not to be insurance. And so essentially what happens is the second call defense foundation pays for everything up front. Uh, nothing is ever has to be paid back to us. And then upon acquittal, the foundation just reimburses or the foundation is reimbursed by the insurance company. That way we're not considered insurance and everything is taken care of. Yeah. And so it was um, we had to cross a lot of hurdles in the meantime to, to figure out how to properly do this. Right. And uh, we spent a lot of money in attorney's fees, making sure that we got it done right. And most of the people out when we started, or I think all of them, they're all insurance based. And so they were all reimbursement. That meant that you had to dip in your own pocket, pay for everything up front. And then you got your money afterwards. Well, and I always said, if we had the money to do that, there would be no need for second call defense. Right, right. So I mean, so now that we know that these options are available, and we're going to give a link to your website in this week's show notes, uh, and in the video description, so people could see what that coverage is like, and we're gonna have a little special deal going on with it as well that we'll give you at the bottom of the episode. But, you know, what do you think are probably the, the biggest assumptions from gun owners, if they think, okay, I'm gonna eventually have to use this in self defense, whether it's, you know, home intrusion, or, mm -hmm. you know, just out in public, 
public anywhere that you would, you know, carry your uh, concealed weapon. You know, what do you think is the biggest misconception that, hey, I was defending my life, so I'm going to be innocent and I'm not going to have to go on trial right. or, hey, this is castle doctrine? Like, what what is the biggest, do you think, uh, a hurdle for people to get over in I, their I mind? Think probably the biggest misconception is that the fact that we all have a right to self-defense. But the defense of self-defense is an affirmative defense. Essentially, we're admitting, yeah, we did it. But I had a reason to do that. And what people don't understand is they feel that there's a good person with a gun. Everything's going to be black and white and uh, it's going to be clear. But oftentimes it's not clear from a couple of different areas. You could be in the wrong part of the country that has an anti-gun bias and it doesn't really matter how good you acted or how properly you did things. You're going to be charged or you're going to be charged. Uh, because of misconceptions in the investigation, or you're going to be charged simply because that's why they do it, or at least the prosecutor is going to send things to the uh, grand jury, and so you're waiting for a month or two. And then in some cases, you know, you're patted on the back and you walk away. But the problem is, under the law in the state of Ohio and throughout the United States, the good person of the gun is considered the defendant. The person who kicked your front door in and you shot in your foyer and saved your, you and your family's life is considered the victim. And that's where we start. They're the victim. You're the defendant. And you have to prove that you properly used the firearm of self-defense and reasonably did so. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. I mean, you, you would imagine that uh, you were the victim the mm -hmm. whole time through. But that in the eyes of the law, since something was fired or, you know, what we've been seeing, right. obviously, a lot of the news, uh, whether they're handling guns properly or not, is the brandishing, right. you know, of firearms. Arms. A few weeks ago, we had Dan Zimmerman from The Truth About Guns on, and we spent some time talking about the couple in St. Louis and everything that went on with that. And and again, you're talking about a jurisdiction where, you know, the prosecutor and folks who are up for election right. are not necessarily, you know, uh, two way friendly. Uh, and so that's, you know, another another notch in their belt. And, and you can't you can't necessarily mm -hmm. overcome somebody's mm -hmm. personal bias and agenda, as, as sad as that is, you know, uh, when it comes to hearings ab about this. And I think what just happened in St. Louis is a perfect example of, of, of what I'm talking about and and how things happen that way. Uh, I've had many occasions where people just don't, don't understand that even though they did everything they had a legal right to do, they're still the defendant and they still have to prove. So, you know, how do you prove uh, to a jury uh, to, or to a judge that you probably use the firearm in self-defense? Right. Uh, when can you use the firearm or lethal force in self-defense? Well, essentially, if you're in fear of death or immediate bodily injury or harm, so that's a subjective. You determine that. It's not what I think. On the mm -hmm. sidelines, it's what you think. And then you use your firearm in self-defense. Okay, now how do we convince a judge and a jury that you did the proper thing? Right. Well, that's the ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. I always call it the administration of justice as an acronym. The ability, the person had the ability, they had a knife, they were 10 feet away from you, and you were in fear because of that. Then they had the opportunity, hey, I'm right here. All that person has to do is approach me and stab me and I'm done. And then the last thing is, is jeopardy. I'm in fear for my life. And when you show that you acted as a reasonable person and you can outline the ability, opportunity and jeopardy, then then finally uh, you've won. You know, and, and you have uh, some testimonials on your website uh, that, uh, you know, some of them are just folks just saying that they feel they have a better peace mm -hmm. of mind and, and uh, that, that they're happy that that's a, a resource that they have available to them. But you do have a few that were like, you know, hey, like I was legit. 
arrested. Right. You know, and, and I believe one, uh, one testimonial was, you know, because they had uh, a second call defense, uh, they were, you know, they were out of jail and right. a matter of hours and, and things were going down the pike to make sure that they and their family were protected. Right. And, and we've uh, handled in the seven or eight years have been in existence. We've had uh, a gentleman outside of uh, LA in, in a uh, suburb, well, obviously, it's the wrong place to own a gun in that part of California. Sure. He shot his neighbor, and his neighbor had been attacking him, and everything was on film. But because of where he was in California, he was charged with first-degree murder. Yeah. And his bond was several million dollars. And every attorney I talked to in the L.A. area wanted $100,000 upfront, non-refundable. And so we were able to stroke that check. And our member uh, was acquitted of, of everything but a few gun specifications, and those were a hung jury. And so all the, all the f- crimes related to the firearm and use of force he was, he, force he was acquitted on, but then you can't have hollow point ammunition in that jurisdiction, or you couldn't use a semi-automatic gun, and they yeah, were they yeah. were hung on that. So you know we we took care of him, and uh, he's he's out today, a free man. Uh, we just recently had a, a woman from Illinois who had to brandish her firearm in Indiana across the line there. And being from Illinois, where you don't have a right to a, a bond, you go to the court mm-hmm. and there, there's no commercial bonding companies and they, they set your bond. And they also provide that if you're from Illinois and you've done something else and, and you've been bonded out, say, in Indiana and you go back home, they don't have a right to come and get you. Yeah. And so because of that, she was elderly in her 60s. Uh, diabetic, needed medication, and she's in jail and her family's calling me. Yeah. So we immediately got bond for her. But in in order for me to do that, I had to get an extra $20,000 and give that as collateral to the bond company because they knew that they couldn't go get her if if she fled. Obviously, a 60-some-year-old woman isn't going to flee. Yeah, a certain type of fleeing. (laughs) We we were able to get her home with her family, and, uh, and everything was fine with that. I had a gentleman in Philadelphia, an older gentleman, uh, I got a phone call on the emergency hotline that uh, uh, I just shot a kid is what he told me. Mm. I was like, oh, my God, someone shot a kid. But he was 73 years old on his bicycle in Philadelphia, riding home from work, and he was knocked off his bicycle and being mugged. Well, these kids were in their 20s, early 20s. I, when you're 70 years old, everybody's yeah, a kid. Yeah. And so we were able to um, to help him out. And he didn't call 911 or didn't call anybody until he got home and he called me first, second call defense first. So I got on the phone and helped him make the 911 call and waited on the phone with him for 45 minutes before the police arrived. Yeah. And then, uh, had a conversation, heard what was going on, and I knew things weren't going to go well. They said, we want you to come down to the station and make a comment or, or make statements. And I said, is he under arrest? And, and they said, no, I said, you're not going anywhere until, you know, we get your local counsel. So I had a local attorney online and I gave him my cell phone number because I still thought that things weren't going to go well. And sure enough, at two o'clock in the morning, and this was in six o'clock in the afternoon, the incident happened at two o'clock in the morning, you know, they're in his house telling him, you know, you're, why didn't you come down to see us? You're going to jail. And so I got on, on the phone with the, with the officer on the scene and I said, hey, wait a minute. Is he charged with anything? No. Are you arresting him? No. I said, then you can't take him to jail. And he said, we are. He's going to go one way or the other. And I said, just so I'm clear, you're violating just about every constitutional right he has and you're taking him right now. Right. And he said, yeah. And then I called um, his local attorney. But before his local attorney even got there, someone with a calmer mind at the precinct in Philadelphia let him go and apologized. 
Yeah. So, but you just don't know. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many, there's so many variables that go into it. And with so many different laws spanning so many different states and in some areas, so many different counties. I mm-hmm. mean, you were talking about a suburb of LA, right. you know, uh, several weeks ago, we had uh, the folks from Pew Pew Tactical on and they're, they're based out of uh, LA County. And some of the things that they have to deal with, I mean, even like you were saying, things like semi-auto, uh, semi-auto weapons, uh, hollow point ammunition, you know, when we send guns out to them for review and mm-hmm. video, I mean, we, we got to send them out to them, California compliant, right. you know right. what I mean? It's a whole kind of a whole other ball of wax. Now, before we had you on the show, uh, Kurt Staubach, who's been on the show before, uh, here at Faxon was telling me about you and telling me about second call. And he showed me his membership card. Uh, and on the back, there's a bit of a script. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes through, okay, after you've called 911, and it even says what to say when you call right. 911, but this, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. I mean, just for the folks who are, who, who are listening, and we'll, we'll show a picture of one of your cards too, but, um, you know, what are some things that people do need to keep in mind if they've found themselves in this situation where they've had to use their firearm uh, in self-defense or brandish their firearm in self-defense and need to start making those calls? You know, what are some of the high-level tips that, that you could give them? Well, the first thing they need to realize is that the moment they call 911, they're on tape and the criminal investigation against them has begun. Now, I'm not saying that the, the 911 operator is out to get you, but he or she will testify against you in court perfect example of that is in the Zimmerman case. George Zimmerman never made a 911 call, but five other people did who heard that and they were grilled by both sides on the stand for what they said and heard on that 911 call. So that's important to know that as soon as you make that call, that uh, that the game is on, so to speak. Yeah. Then you want to make it as short as, as possible. You identify yourself. My name is Sean Maloney. I live at 4793 Willow Ridge Court. I was in fear for my life. There's been a shooting, sending ambulance and police. I'm six foot two. I'm bald. I'll be in my driveway yeah. with a white t-shirt and boxer shorts on. And <laughs> don't go out there me. with your gun. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Identify who, who you are and what's going on. And that's it. You've given them everything you, need, you needed to give them. You've summoned help. Now, at that point in time, it's time to protect yourself against the secondary thing. And that's, that's the, the criminal justice system and sometimes the criminal injustice system. We still have, we have the best system in the world, but at times it's certainly not colorblind and it's not, it's not blind to the the facts uh, real or what they imagine them to be. So that's simply uh, the first time I gave that seminar was at the great American outdoor show. And there was gaffes from everybody. I got surrounded by the media. You're telling people what to say. And I won't call you're telling them to be deceitful. I said, no, I'm not at all. I'm just telling them that they don't need to make any other statements until they're represented by counsel. Right. Uh, there was a Supreme Court justice 100 years ago, and he, he used some famous words. Any attorney worth his salt will advise his client to shut up mm-hmm. and not to say anything until his, his counsel is there. And that's what you have to remember. Now, on top of everything else that's going on, after you use your firearm self-defense, you're suffering from the, uh, the psychological and physical aspects oh, of a threatening sure. encounter. Yeah. Norepinephrine is just dumped in your body. Your, your heart rate's increased. You've had tunnel vision, hearing deprivation, uh, the adrenaline. You really don't know what happened. But that's the moment the police want you to get, make a statement. Well, that's the statement. That, at that point in time, that you were the most uh, non-credible person that there is because you have no idea what happened. Right. And over time, that'll come back. Sometimes it's weeks, 
days, months, sometimes not all whatever comes back. That's just the way the body uh, uh, responds. And so that's why you say nothing and then we'll move forward. Right. And uh, I think that's huge because when I, I remember taking my first uh, concealed carry course and I remember uh, the instructor that I had, you know, talking about, okay, if, if you do have to use this, you know, and talking about the tunnel vision talking about the memory and everything. But the thing that was crazy to me and I had never really thought about it, but it made sense. He goes, you're probably going to feel sick. Mm-hmm. Like you might vomit right mm-hmm. then and there. Like you, there's going to be so much, like you said, the hormonal things, the adrenaline things that are happening to you. And at the end of the day, you're still trying to be a model citizen, call the ambulance, you know, Mm -hmm. call 911, get everything on the up and up. And and it is, it's sad that uh, for the folks who, who did these things in a, in a a lawful manner, do it in self-defense can get strung up by their own words simply because you're just trying to help. You're trying right. to be compliant. You're trying to, you know, respect the authority of the officer on the scene. But if you are in that state, there's a good chance you might say things you don't mean, say things right. that did happen or didn't happen. Exactly. Uh, and and gets, gets yourself into more trouble because now it's no longer, hey, tell me the truth. Right. It's now we have to... I took what you first said as the truth, and now mm-hmm. we have to go back and debunk what you first said. Well, and, and that's the problem because you have two statements given immediately after the incident, and a statement given four days later are going to be markedly different. And then right. how, how do you how do you justify those to a, a jury of your peers or to the investigators? Oftentimes, it's hard. Luckily, since concealed carry has become more of a common uh, thing in the United States, things are a little bit different. A little bit different. Uh, prosecutors are a little bit more educated. I was a consultant probably 10 years ago in uh, in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, first shooting that occurred. I actually got a phone call from Dick Heller from Heller versus Washington, D.C. and said, hey, I got a guy that called me. I think he needs your help. He was already represented by counsel in, in, uh, initially, but he was represented by his brother's divorce attorney, which was the wrong attorney to have. Mm-hmm. And kind of that's what got him down the wrong path. But he and his wife came home from dinner. They were entering their house. Uh, they were assaulted from behind. And uh, there's a struggle. Uh, Big Montana was his name. It was his cowboy action shooting handle. So I always refer to him as Big Montana. (laughs) Just had open heart surgery and was knocked to the ground. Yeah. Uh, Drew his uh, his, uh, 1911 from his belt. And the first thing he did was a mistake. And that was fire a warning shot into the ground. And uh, on cross-examination at one of the hearings, I uh, asked him, uh, asked the uh, the true defendant, did you, what did you do when you heard a warning shot? He goes, I didn't hear a warning shot. Hmm. In fact, Big Montana got to his firearm and fired a second shot, shattered his femur. I asked the guy, what did you think when, when the bullet struck your femur? He said, I didn't feel anything. Because the adrenaline, the neuropronephrine, the bad guy's feeling everything that you are. Right. And the police officer is. And in this case, Big Montana goes back to his truck. Calls 911, hands the phone to his wife, and the 911 operator is telling his wife how to put a tourniquet on, how to apply direct pressure to stop the bleeding. Big Montana is putting the firearm in his truck, but then he starts screaming, you SOB, I should have shot you again. You're bleeding like a stuck pig. I hope you bleed to death. He's making all these statements. He's screaming, but because of the psychological aspects of the threatening encounter, he has no idea what he's saying or doing. Well, and he just said he just had open heart surgery. Right, exactly. And he <laughs> thought, and yeah. he's on blood thinners. Yeah. So he thinks this guy's beating me and I'm going to die. Well, the police got there. They investigated it. Everything was perfect. They said, hey, you had a right to do everything you needed to do. Two or three year, days later, the 911 operator 
gave the tape to the prosecutor because she said, listen to that stuff in the background. So then the prosecutor, who's never really in rural Pennsylvania, even prosecuted a murder case or any, anything, said, boy, something doesn't seem strange. He must have knew this guy. He's yelling, I should have shot you again. You're bleeding like a stuck pig. And because of that, then they charged Big Montana. Mm. Uh, and then because he didn't have proper counsel, I, I think from the beginning, uh, things went uh, bad for him. Uh, his, he and his wife ended up staying uh, with their son. Their house was foreclosed on because who wants to hire somebody that's just been charged with attempted murder? Yeah. And so then everything went down the road. But then once proper counsel was involved and we educated the prosecutor about the psychological aspects of our threatening encounter, he understood. Now, in, in, at trial, if you say too much, I have to bring in a, a forensic psychologist, have them recreate the situation, educate the jury as the, the uh, psychological and physical aspects of a threatening encounter. That's why I always say don't say anything because then we'll avoid that step. Yeah. I mean, again, it's 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 not uh, it's not an old Western movie. Right. You know, uh, this guy tried to steal my horse. They shot him dead. Judge says understood right. you know it's it's not it's not that cut and dry even if you are in the right and i mean i'm sure there's lots of folks who who feel themselves as, as being incredibly mentally strong mm -hmm. but you you can't overcome the fact that like if you just had to shoot someone or you you, you were just attacked or your loved one was just right. attacked like that is just so many variables such a high stress situation uh that frankly i don't think it's it's um psychologically responsible to think that you're going to be of sound mind, you know, right after something you know what, like that. And, and nobody knows how they're going to react. Uh, the soldiers in the battlefield sure. uh, oftentimes go through the same things. Our police officers, our heroes on the front lines that are trained and that probably are, are put in harm's way more often than not. You don't know how they're going to react. And sometimes they don't react. I mean, I've, I've, I've had cases where uh, representing police officers, how many times you shoot? Well, twice. Twice, well, he shot empty two magazines, but he didn't doesn't remember. And that's how we are. We really don't remember almost anything of what happened other than the fact that we we're in fear of death or serious bodily injury. Yeah. And, and we reacted. We don't remember what we did. We don't remember the timing. Uh, there's there's so much that that we don't know. And we're in our own house. And suddenly, how do you react when your house is now treated like a crime scene? Oh, for sure. So, yeah. Because then it starts all over. When it, when the police arrive at your house, there's the bad guy. There's the weapon. Uh, my wife, my children witnessed it. And until we've had the opportunity to speak to an attorney, none of us are going to make any statements. And I'm sure I understand. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe on uh, at least a couple of, of your options uh, for second call defense, there is some psychological help mm -hmm. too, right? Uh, some counsel right. that, that could could help folks kind of deal with the aftermath and trauma of a, of a situation yes, like this. The, the upper two levels have that. And uh, it's just not only uh, used for a situation when you've had to use lethal force. I had a, uh, a person in Colorado was cleaning their firearm, had a negligent discharge, mm. went through the wall. Uh, so we we represented her because she was charged criminally uh, for the negligent discharge, but she wasn't a firearms instructor. And she was so uh, disturbed by what happened. She couldn't instruct anymore. She couldn't sleep at night. So we, we even had to get her psychological counseling for that because what was going through her mind was what if. And sure. so you can put those what ifs to sleep. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very good. Well, where could people find out more about you and about Second Call? Go to www.secondcalldefense.org. 
and there's plans and pricing. There's a lot of free material on there, how to handle a nine-on-one calls on there. We have a probably a 50 or 60 page guide on, uh, on using firearms and self-defense and what to do afterwards. We have lots of links to other places. Uh, we, we, we're a big educational website on top of, uh, uh, providing you the protection that you need through our, our membership benefits. Yeah, absolutely. And they do, like you mentioned, have some free downloadable guides as well as stuff that you could just read on the website, uh, and, uh, a great newsletter that, uh, you can, uh, keep up to date on some of the right. legal ebbs and flows and how things are changing across the country as, as far as, uh, gun laws and, uh, uh, the rights you have as a, as an armed citizen. And you said you have a special offer. Yeah. code for our if, listeners. If anybody wants to uh, become a member of Second Call Defense, use the offer code, code Faxon, and we'll provide the first month's free. Now, I can't buy insurance for you, so what has to happen is you have to enter your credit card information, but in about two days, you're going to get your membership packet, and in that membership packet, you're going to have a check for your first month for free. That's fantastic. That way, you can cancel if you don't like us, but you'll get be able to get into the member section also and see the even greater things we have in there. Uh, there are seminars all over that I do. In fact, I, I mentioned uh, off camera that I'm heading to Colorado next mm -hmm. week for seminars on lethal force and the law. And uh, I'll try to talk these guys and let me do a seminar online for you. All right. That sounds great. Again, make sure you visit secondcalldefense.org. Use the offer code Faxon uh, to get your first month uh, free reimbursed back to you and, uh, and check out all of their great resources. Sean, thank you so much for being on with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the recast. Sean will be back with us in a couple of weeks, along with returning guest Dan Zimmerman of The Truth About Guns for an episode entitled Firearms and the Election. This will be a roundtable conversation, breaking down what possible election outcomes could do to the firearms industry and community. You can find it and a whole lot more at faxandfirearms.com slash blog. Hi and welcome. Hi and welcome. The Facts and Blog and Podcast.